You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we have the pleasure of having Senator Brian Schatz with us, but he can only spend the first part of this hour with us. So if you have a burning question, ask away by calling in or emailing. Call 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 on the neighbor islands or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Good morning, Senator. Good morning, Catherine. How are you doing? Good. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, because just minutes ago, we had a successful landing of a rover on Mars. Can you believe it? It's so incredible. I just saw the, the footage on, online, you know, the footage of the, uh, of the control room with the sort, of, the, the sort of thrilled NASA scientists in the control room, um, like they just won the Super Bowl, and they did. <laughs> Um, so very cool. Congratulations to NASA and everybody that was involved. And just a reminder that uh, that scientific discovery is 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 part of our great American tradition. And um, hopefully this inspires a, a, a new generation to uh, to study hard and to find new things in our universe. Yes, and we will be talking with a Hawaii scientist who had a part in that mission uh, later today. So, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's just a tremendous day. Uh, yeah, it's something that we can all be proud of as a country. Yes, absolutely. You know, I have to ask, I, I'm, I'm glad you're here at home and you're staying warm because I just saw in D.C. it's like 32 degrees, it's snowing, and they decla- declared, a, I think, a snow emergency day. Uh, you know, but I don't know, what was it like when you were flying back home? You know, I don't know if the, the planes were full, but you probably saw like the shuttered vendors at the airport. You know, we're all still struggling and, and we're pretty hopeful about, you know, what's in this uh, relief package that's poised to pass. Yeah, it's been, um, you know, the, we- the weather's always awful in D.C. in January and February. So that's 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 nothing new, but we are excited about the possibility of passing a relief package. There is broad agreement about what ought to be in it, um, and we're getting to the sort of last uh, elements. But uh, broadly speaking, there's going to be money for state and county government uh, for vaccine distribution um, to meet be- people's basic needs. Um, that, that includes uh, food and rent uh, and transportation to survive the next couple of months and of course uh, more support for our small and medium-sized businesses um, through the PPP program and a couple of new programs that are are going to be established. So it's a big package. Um, We feel like um, this this package is going to have to last us, you know, not just a couple of months but maybe half the year and that's why the dollar amount is larger but um, you know Hawaii um, we'll greatly benefit if we're able to get this done uh, probably in the first week of March. And I know, you know, there there is concern that, uh, you know, you can't help everybody, and, and, the, and the bill probably doesn't cover aid to, to everybody. There are probably some things that have just, uh, you know, fallen through the cracks. But uh, uh, definitely, you know, as, this, as the lawmakers uh, prepare to, to vote on this thing, uh, that we can get that money soon into the hands of the of the of the businesses and the nonprofits that need it. Yeah, absolutely, and I think um, you know this this uh, pot of money is likely to be a little more flexible than some of the previous pots of money. And I think we've learned through this process that you know it's nice to do eligibility determination and try to figure out you know who's quote unquote worthy of the money, but if that's going to take six months to figure out and administer. You know, it's just better and wiser in an emergency such as this to assume that people need help um, and to assume that everybody needs at least some uh, assistance to get through this, this uh, dark period. And um, will there be a few people getting $1,400 checks that maybe don't need it? Yeah, I think that's likely. But I think that it, that is still way smarter policy um, than creating a bunch of hoops for people to jump through. And then it takes 120 or 180 days uh, for them to get the money that they need to, you know, pay their bills, stay in their apartment, buy their groceries. You know, and I know some folks who maybe uh, have jobs and uh, don't really need the money are turning around and donating them to places like the food bank, you know, or agencies that uh, that need the help that can spread the aloha around the community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, look, if you've got extra cash, that um, uh, that's that's a wise way to use the money. Um, but I, but I think that. The, the lion's share of people in the state of Hawaii are, are in some form or fashion suffering. Um, you know, parents are 
having uh, a terrible time trying to balance their professional obligations if they have a job um, with uh, online schooling. Kids are having an awful time staring at that screen, trying to stay focused all day. Um, Teachers have it real hard because some of them uh, are having to to figure out how to deliver an online education. And, um, you know, small businesses are suffering. There's just not a category of person in the state of Hawaii who isn't you know, really feeling the impact of this pandemic. And I do think this money will help. Yeah, and my heart really breaks for the kids. I mean, I know my kids both went to private and public schools. And, you know, we've been in contact with HAIS, the Association of Independent Schools. And and a lot of those schools are already back in the classroom, but not so much for public schools. Yeah, I mean, some of that is is a resource question. uh, And some of that was that the Department of Health uh, and the Department of Education had been following a CDC guideline but that guideline just changed, and the CDC is now saying that we are in what they're calling the blue zone, uh, which basically means we have low enough COVID rates that they recommend that we reopen schools, um, even if um, you can't always maintain uh, six feet of social distancing. Um, there's nothing particularly magical about six feet versus four feet. Um, you know, lots of other countries recommend three feet. Um uh, and the idea is to maintain whatever distance you're capable of maintaining. But in a place where there's, you know, a, a very, very small COVID rate, um, the public health equities and the public policy equities, um, I think, heavily are weighted towards reopening the schools wherever possible. We're going to have to make accommodations. You know, there are teachers and students who will need uh, accommodations to make sure they're safe and, and can do their job as a, as a teacher or a student. Um, But for the most part, I think everybody's in agreement that in-person delivery of education is better than doing it through a screen. And you've uh, reached out to the teachers union uh, with the DOE, you know, just to talk about, you know, finding that middle ground and moving forward. Yeah, I've had really good uh, constructive conversations with um, with uh, Dr. Kishimoto, um, with uh, through my staff, with the Department of Health uh, leaders, uh, with the lieutenant governor and the governor. Uh, and and Corey Rosenlee from HSTA. So, you know, is this going to be hard? Sure. Will there be little disagreements as we go along? Yeah. But um, what I was pleased to know is that there's not a single person in a position of authority who is saying we shouldn't or cannot uh, open uh, schools in in the fourth quarter of this academic year. Now, it could be real hard, and there could be um, individual teachers, uh, excuse me, uh, principals who decide not to do it in the fourth quarter. But I think we owe it to these kids to to do everything that would be necessary for the purpose of opening. And then if the COVID rates spike or it just ends up not being achievable, well, at least we've, we've, we've tried our best to deliver some modicum of in-person education. So this week was good in the sense that we've got everybody sort of on the record saying the right thing. Mm-hmm. Now it's logistics, and these logistics are, are you know, no small thing. And, and you know, Senator, um, I did get a chance to talk to the rest of the Hawaii delegation, uh, you know, when we saw the uh, siege happen at the Capitol. I didn't get a chance to talk to you directly, but we were all worried for your safety, and I understand that you were on the Senate floor that day. Uh, and I think for me, when I saw that the video of the officer Eugene Goodman, you know, how he put himself in danger to help protect those lawmakers there in the chambers. I mean, I was just dumbfounded, just so amazed at his, uh, his heroic efforts. Yeah, I mean, the, my sort of personal experience was so different from um, how I processed it a couple of days later because, the, you know, I was on the Senate floor. They shut down the, uh, <clears throat> the doors to the Senate chamber, and there are probably, I don't know, a dozen or more of the doors. They yelled, lockdown, lockdown, shots fired, and you could hear something. And now I know that was Officer Goodman um, redirecting the crowd um, away from us uh, and, and saving the United States Senate. But I didn't know any of that at the time. All I heard was noise and instructions, and then they quickly moved us in a single-file line on foot to a safe location. And so I never personally felt imperiled, um, and that's not the case for a lot of House members or even a couple of senators who just found themselves in a, in a different office, not in the chamber, um, adjacent to the insurrectionists, you know, um, hiding under a desk. But my experience was, I mean, I was alarmed for the country, but I never felt personally endangered. And then I started to kind of 
understand exactly how this all went down because there's so much video evidence and and to kind of process the fact that you know this was a real near miss this was uh, we were physically in danger and certainly uh, american style democracy uh, was in danger and so um, i'm just hopeful that um, speaker pelosi's proposal for a 9-11 style commission to get to the bottom of all of it with subpoena authority um, will go forward and um, and I think there has to be accountability for the extent to which the um, propagation of a lie that said that this election was not fair and free um, really caused people to uh, uh, take matters into their own hands and foment an attempted revolution. Do you think we should keep those barriers up around the Capitol building? Um, you know, part of here's here's where I come down on that. My instinct is to say no, because I like our, our Hawaii capital and its openness, and I like the fact that you can, you know, you still have to go through a magnetometer in the U.S. Capitol, but you can walk right up to some of these Senate buildings and um, and even get pretty close to the dome to check it out, because it's, it's the citadel for, for, for democracy around the world. Um, but I haven't gotten the law enforcement briefing about the kind of current threat environment, and so I would love to say definitively that these walls should these fences should come down but i'd like to know that it is sufficiently safe to do that but i do think eventually um, those fences should come down we don't want to live uh in, in a democracy where 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 our national legislature has to be fortified in that way you know we mentioned at the top of the show that you've just been uh, tapped as chair of indian affairs chair of the appropriation subcommittee on transportation housing and urban development uh, that triggered a listener to call in. See if this voice sounds familiar to you. Hi, my name is Mrs. Brady. I had a couple of questions for Brian. Actually, I taught he and his brother Stephen preschool. I'm delighted that he's transportation and Indian affairs. Anybody who doesn't understand Indian affairs, just read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown or rewatch Dances with Wolves. Uh, regarding the rail, no matter how much money federal and state has poured into this eyesore, there's never been any transparency or no accountability. It's kind of like writing a blank check. All of us that have a budget, we have to keep with the budget. We might go a little under, a little over, but we have to stay with it. This has just been bad money, way beyond the original quote. And it's such a blight, and it just keeps going. And now with the pandemic and nobody having jobs. I mean, I just don't see where we're going to even be able to pay for the upkeep, much less plow it down to downtown. Uh, it should have stopped at Middle Street where it could pick up our world-class bus system. Anyhow, I'm so disgusted with that whole thing. I don't know why we do eyesores. You know, nobody's going to come here saying, can't wait to ride on the rail. How about seeing beautiful vistas instead of eyesores, like that stairway to uh, the stars or heaven? You know, make that doable, like the climb in Hawaii Kai. You know, fix it so that people will be willing to pay money, like they do at Hanama Bay. We can make something like that beautiful and worthwhile going to see. Uh, I don't know, Brian. I'm just so disgusted with... Uh, some of this stuff going on, the rail and the cost and what it's going to cost us for the upkeep. Anyhow, but I'm very encouraged that you're at the helm now and are so bright and capable. Your mom and dad did a great job with you uh, and the rest of your family. Thank you. So what do you think, Mrs. Brady? Well, I'm Mrs. Brady, <laughs> um, and thank you for the kind words, and um, I'll send uh, your regards to my mother. Um, on rail, um, I think, you know, she, she speaks for a lot of people in terms of the trust deficit that we now have uh, between the community and Hart in particular, and the city also. Um, the, the sense is, and I think it's, it's an earned view, is that we have been continually told a sort of magical story about how everything is going to work out uh, and that this is, you know, that we're just so close to being finished and that, you know, it looks like uh, with this new plan we should be a-okay. And we've been hearing that for year after year after year. And we don't just have a, a trust deficit with the community. 
there's also a trust de- deficit with the federal government, with the FTA. And so what I'm glad about is Lori Kahikina and, and Rick Blangiardi um, appear to acknowledge that and want to start from a baseline of, okay, what are our facts? What is the situation? And how much are we in the hole? And, um, and to not sort of paint a, an overly rosy picture, but to really figure out what the shortfall is. Um, then, in my capacity as, as the new chairman of the, of the subcommittee, I can be useful in, you know, opening up lines of communication with the federal, uh, uh, with the FTA, um, and and maybe even with the legislature and the council. But nobody is going to be willing to help if they can't trust the numbers coming out of heart. And so the first step is for uh, Lori and her team to develop a new financial plan and a new construction plan, and then tell us, you know, whether it can be done within existing resources or uh, if there are additional needs what those are but right now we're speculating and um and i think that nobody really trusts the numbers so Lori's going to have to on behalf of the taxpayer of the city county of honolulu sort of be totally transparent and let us know where this project is at and then rick and Lori uh and the city council and, and our local leaders are going to have to decide what the path forward may be Okay, and then we did get an email from James McKay, uh, who wants to know where you stand on Department of Hawaiian Homelands. He says that uh, apparently 40% of the Navajo Indians don't have electricity on the reservation. Uh, does anyone here at DHHL, are they, you know, keeping track of who doesn't, what Hawaiian homesteaders don't have electricity lines, you know, running to their homes? Uh, he says he's not advocating oh. for grid connection, but off-grid solutions to address this need. Yeah, so, um, you know, I've been working very closely with the Department of Hawaiian Homelands over the last several years because they're, the federal funding that goes to them uh, is called the Native Hawaiian Housing Block Grant. And they kept put, taking the money that we would get appropriated and, and literally put it in a pile and not spend it. They, they were investing in certificates of deposit, long-term financial instruments, not even trying to spend the federal funds. And it became very difficult for me to get more federal funds if all they were doing was sort of adding to their their um, corpus and um, I think things are turning around at the department I'm not suggesting that things will go perfectly but I do think under under chairman Isla and and his uh, deputy um, Tyler Gomes there's a recognition that yes we need to work on putting people into homestead land in the most traditional sense but there are also a lot of people who could benefit from programs that VHHL is permitted to do, um, rent relief, broadband funding, financial literacy. <clears throat> Those are all permissible uses of the federal funding that I've been able to um, get to the department. And especially in a pandemic, um, you know, we got $30 million in, in December for the department. And, you know, this is emergency money, and it has to be pushed out right away. We don't want this to end up being, uh, you know, just an infrastructure project um, that would enable, you know, 20 or 30 homes to be built in 10 years. That's not what this money is for. This money is to provide relief to to Native Hawaiians, both um, on the homeland and, and near the homeland. It doesn't have to be that they're on DHHL land to be eligible for some of these programs. So... I believe they are open to a kind of transformation of the way they deliver services, and it's their call. They have their own commission, um, but I'm I'm here to help and to try to get them money for it. Okay, and we have a call coming in from Wailua. Ryan, you have a question for the senator? Yeah, hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call, um, Senator Schatz. Uh, a lot of us on the North Shore are concerned with the DOTA pulling uh, out of their lease with the Army uh, with uh, Dillingham Airfield and the 130 or so jobs and $12 million in revenue that comes to the North Shore. I, my question is, do you support keeping the air, uh, airfield uh, open for public use? And uh, also, will you uh, ally maybe with uh, Representative Kaika Haley, who is kind of a championing for the cause? Uh, keeping it open, and uh, that's my question. Thank you. Ryan, thank you for the question, and I want to respect it sufficiently. I'm sorry I can't give you a, um, a, an off-the-cuff answer. What I can tell you is that I will talk to Kai um, right away. Um, I, I'm, I'm somewhat uh, familiar with this situation, but I didn't know when 
the federal government is pulling out and what the implications are and what the uh, potential solution set is. But I will talk to Kai and we will get back to you. Okay, we have another call coming in from the Big Island. Gary, what's on your mind? Hi, thank you. Uh, first of all, with, I have two, two comments. I'll make them brief. As far as COVID, it's great that we're getting the vaccine out, but we need rapid tests. We need, we've dropped the ball on that, and we continue to drop the ball. If we can test people, we can isolate them. We can keep them out of the workforce and out of the schools, and we can beat this thing real quick. My second comment, and please don't take this you know, we've got some audio issues there. I think the second question was, you know, uh, uh, you know, don't play ball with the Republicans. Do what we need to do. But do you want to address his concern about testing, Senator? Sure. Um, he's right about testing. And let me just sort of address, you have better ear than me, Catherine, um, uh, training in the radio. I didn't catch the second question. Um, but but if it's sort of do what you need to do as, as it relates to COVID relief, I think that's right. Um, look, I, I one of the things that I find most enjoyable about the United States Senate is that because of, because of our weird rules, it actually is almost a requirement to, to find a Republican co-sponsor for any legislation that you want to enact. There is one exception, and that is in this budget reconciliation process, you can do something with, with uh, 50 votes plus the vice president to break the tie. And, you know, it's not my preferred way to get COVID relief done, but I am very clear that we do not have 10 Republicans who are going to vote for COVID relief, um, or at least not a sufficiently large package to get us through this crisis. And so... Um, you know, if I have to pick between getting something done and not getting something done, I'm always going to err on the side of, of getting something done. And would I prefer to have 15 or 20 Republicans voting with us? Sure, but that's really up to them, not, not up to me. Okay, we only have a, about two minutes left. I don't know, any final thoughts? Well, I, I just wanted to comment a little bit about the vaccine. Um, I, I think that there's been we've all been sort of worn down emotionally, intellectually um, <clears throat> by this pandemic. And so we're unaccustomed to good news because every time someone pops up with, you know, it's Regeneron or it's Remdesivir or whatever, it always sounds like some, you know, fake solution and some person, you know, with a pie in the sky idea about how we're going to you know, get rid of this pandemic. But the vaccine is exactly that. The vaccine is an actual miracle of modern science. Um, and there are going to be lots of them available a lot sooner than we could have reasonably anticipated. And the results are already taking hold in the state of Hawaii. And I just think it's really important that everybody feel personally good about getting vaccinated wherever they are in the tiers. Don't, don't do something where you pretend to be noble and wait for someone else. Go get vaccinated. You are, you are keeping other people safe um, as soon as it's your turn. And we've all got to engage in, in personal conversation with folks who may have their own reasons or reservations for, for not wanting to get vaccinated because, you know, 40% of the, the public being vaccinated is great, but that will not get us to herd immunity. So this first batch of people are almost by definition the people who want the vaccine. That last tranche, we're going to have to talk to folks and not just kind of insult them as anti-vaxxers, but to kind of engage with folks to let them know this thing is a miracle, it will save your life, it will save someone uh, who you love um, from getting sick, and it will at a minimum, even if you don't care about any of that or the risk around any of that, it will at a minimum enable you to get your life back, to get your social life back, to be able to hug your grandma, um, to go back to work. So I just think we all have a collective obligation to actually talk up the vaccine, even though over the last year it's been hard to talk up anything. All right, okay, well... Uh, th we thank you for your time. Uh, we wish you safe travels as you uh, head back into the uh, terrible weather there on the mainland. Uh, but uh, stay positive and test negative, Senator. <laughs> Thanks very much. Take care. Okay. Mahalo. We have been talking with Senator Brian Schatz here on Hawaii Public Radio.
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, offering virtual classes including art, film, history, and gardening, with start dates through March 4th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to the Hub Coworking Hawaii, Manoa Valley Theater, and Fleming and Associates. They believe, as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii, which helped develop the city and county's COVID-19 testing lab at Honolulu Airport and now at Hawaiian Monarch Hotel in Waikiki. Walk-ins welcome daily, kidneyhi.org. Myanmar, or Burma, is strategically important to the U.S. It's in a critical geopolitical region some describe as an area that could be a backdoor to the Indian Ocean for China. It is often referred to under the One Belt, One Road initiative by China to expand its reach in the region. We reached out to Mimi Winbird, an adjunct fellow at the East-West Center, who's been monitoring the military coup, the growing demonstrations, and the arrest of leader Aung San Suu Kyi. You may recall the world leader visited the islands to receive a peace award when she was in power. She's now behind bars. Here's Bird's take on the situation there. The people of Myanmar, you know, they really want to stay a democratic country. And they really had, you know, 10 years of taste of democracy. And they don't want to go back to the dark ages where over 70 years under the military rule, they don't want to go back where they have to live by fear. And especially the young generation, they, they call themselves Generation Z, that are under 25, that are leading the, the protests right now because they became adult last 10 years, right, and under the more of a democratic environment. They don't have to live by fear, but they have heard about living by fear prior to 2010, and they don't want to do that. They have hopes and dreams and that they wanted to achieve, and, you know, they know that it will be squashed under the military rule. And I understand that they have a hand gesture that is part <laughs> of the movement. That's right, yes. They're using the the three-finger salute, right? And I didn't even know. I'm not a Generation Z, so I didn't know. So I looked it up, and sure enough, it's a hunger game. It's the protest, you know, um, uh, symbol or gesture from Hunger Games. So as you can see, Generation Z is unlike previous generation who were, you know, who grew, previous generation grew up under the isolation, you know, um, under the military rule. This generation grew up, you know, with the Hunger Games and they're uh, adopting the, the, the three-finger gesture as their uh, protest symbol. And which also, I think, makes it, I think, universal almost. So, it seems that across the globe, people recognize that. You know, it seems like they're they're communicating to the world of their wishes, their voices with the three fingers. So those who are a fan of, you know, Hunger Games, they know right away what they're trying to do. And so as you read the headlines of these stories that are coming out, because it's been, what, two weeks since this military coup? Yeah, 17 coup. days of uh, protests. It's hard to say what is the final outcome going to be, but what I can say is it is different than 1988 uprising. And there are two parts to that. You know, one part is the, the protesters themselves, like I said, they're a lot smarter uh, they're a lot more innovative, creative, and they are able to use a lot of these techno technological tools and that to to overcome any type of opposition from the military side. And then from the military also, and another thing about this movement is they don't have any clear leaders. People lead as needed. So it seems like they're utilizing flying geese formation, you know, uh, there's no clear leader, so they can. So the, from the military side, they don't know who to apprehend. They're looking for that head, and there's no really head. You know, keep on changing, so they couldn't do that. So, but military-wise, military also did not uh, anticipated the 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 fluidity and the, also the the kids' capability. You know, the young people's capability and resourcefulness and their ability to utilize technology and their ability to mobilize the entire world. Uh, they did not expect that. 
You know, they thought they can do like what they did in 1988. So from the military side, they're stuck in the 80s, and the kid has moved on to, you know, 21st century. I stop and think, too, of what we saw in Hong Kong, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. pre-pandemic, right? A lot of the opposition to, you know, what was going on with mainland China and and, uh, the young adults uh, fearing that they were going to lose their freedoms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, right, right. In Hong Kong case, you know, it seems that the young people weren't able to really mobilize the the other generation, right? In Myanmar case, the the youngs are mobilizing the the other generation. The other generations are falling behind the the young. So there has been a lot of you know articles being written, a lot of speeches being made by other generation, older generations, saying how impressed they were by the, these young generation, and they are there to support. They're in the supporting role. They realize what they're doing, and they're in agreement with the young. You know, when you talked about how they have no leader, and uh, what flashed in my brain was the siege on the Capitol, and then, you know, the criticism that we heard about democracy and what the U.S. stands for and how this was going to be viewed, that, you know, situation that day, in other places where, you know, mm-hmm. like Myanmar, right, where they're fighting for mm-hmm. democracy. Right. Well, I mean, U.S. have a lot of influence, right? Like even from the Hollywood, you know, the Hunger Game to uh, the military is right now, their whole argument is that there was a voter fraud, or election fraud, and that's why they are forced to seize the power from the ruling party. Because they had the Myanmar had a um, you know the the election in uh, November eight, and since then you know they I guess they're taking cue from us and saying they're adamant that there's a um, there's a uh, election fraud and of course Myanmar uh, uh, election has been uh, you know had external observer UN and all those guys are in there and that all of them said there was nothing really. Um, uh, not enough to change the, you know, the outcome, right? That was what the observers were saying. But military felt that their um, their claim of voter fraud and election fraud was not properly addressed. So they are they have no choice but to um, uh, do what they did. And so the situation when with the Myanmar leader on San Suu Kyi. You know, she actually came here to Hawaii a few years ago. Right, yeah. There's a lot of connections between the Myanmar and Hawaii, believe it or not. She was freed back in 2011, 2012, and then she came to Hawaii because I think um, the uh, Rotary gave her the uh, Peace Award, so she came here. And then she went and spoke at the East-West Center, you know. And then, like, over the years, too, East-West Center, in spite of all the sanctions that U.S. had against Myanmar, East-West Center was the main connection back to Myanmar. So East-West Center has educated a lot of civil society leaders and one of them, actually, the most famous alumnus of East West Center, Mr. Aung Tu, was the Minister of Commerce and Trade under Aung San Suu Kyi administration. And then also East West Center held the very first uh, media conference as Myanmar become open back in 2013. So, yeah, there's a lot of connection for our little, you know, island Hawaii half back to Myanmar, and it has been one of the connecting tissue. We play as a bridge or port, you know, the, the, the gate to, gateway to Myanmar from the United States. And President Biden, you know, has issued some sanctions. You know, there are calls, I think, from other countries about what's happening there in Myanmar. There's concern over um, the turn of events. Right, yeah. President Biden has done is a very targeted sanction against the specific military, you know, leadership. So it's not a, uh, it's not, again, it's not like the same type of broad sanction, economic sanction like we have done before. This is very targeted because those broad sanctions uh, back, you know, it, it really didn't hurt the military. It hurts the, the people, mm. you know. So now we, we're a little bit more, I guess, sensitive to that, and we're very targeted to um, uh specifically the, the military leadership and its family members. So what should we be watching for then in these coming weeks as, as this all plays out? 
Well, you know, one of the things I have advocated is maybe we need to find a way to for the military to have a space-saving way of bowing, you know, to step back, right? Because really, I don't think the military um, estimated the level of opposition that they were going to face, so they're just now surprised by the whole thing. You know, they thought they could easily do like what they did in 1988 and hold on to the power. But I don't think that this generation, the, the Myanmar population, is going to allow that. So then uh, the military has to figure out what would be the, uh, you know, in the military we used to call it off-ramp, you know, face-saving way of stepping back. We've been hearing from Mimi Winbird, adjunct fellow at the East-West Center, about the latest political developments in Myanmar. Reality Check Today features a story from Honolulu Civil Beats government reporter Kevin Dayton. It's a tax story, but it's a, a political editor, Chad Blair, who was pitch hitting for him. Good morning, Chad. <laughs> Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. So taxes. Hmm. Mm, yeah, this is, uh, as you said, it's Kevin's story, and it's the top story on our site today. And it's getting a lot of hits. It's, yes. <laughs> well, it, it caught my surprise. I'll, I'll try and, and summarize as best as I can. There's two bills, H House Bill 20, 1208 and 1209. They're companions in a sense in that they go hand in hand. One bill would actually allow the state of Hawaii to impose property taxes, something they currently cannot do. And the second bill uh, would actually, here's the real interesting part, suspend that's the key word, suspend the Hawaii state personal income tax and the corporate income tax. Uh, in theory, it could even lower income taxes to as low as zero. Uh, boy, that'll catch your attention. Uh, it's got a long ways to go, but it's um, it's coming from House leadership. Uh, Scott Psyche, the House Speaker, Sylvia Luke, uh, the finance chair, uh, Della Albalotti, uh, the majority leader. So there's a lot of power behind it, at least in the House. Yes, and I know when we uh, talked to House and Senate leadership, you know, they were saying, well, we need to kind of re revisit our relationship with the counties. We need to do government differently. So this would fall into that. Yeah, there's a couple of things at play here. One is only the counties, uh, all four of them, can actually uh, tax property, right? That's out of the Constitution. So if you're going to change that, well, you're going to have to change the Constitution. You're going to have to amend it. That would require us voters going and giving approval we did try and do that in 2018. You might remember there was a proposal to let the state tap into some uh, certain property properties to get tax money to help schools, right? The HSTA mm-hmm. was behind it. Well, that didn't that didn't go through. There's a lot of reasons for that. But the thing that Della Albalotti in particular is saying is, and this is to your point, there's an imbalance. That's the word she uses in the way that Hawaii handles their taxation. And it includes this, the fact that the state unlike a lot of other states, is responsible for things that normally a lot of cities and counties would cover. That includes our public hospitals, that includes our jails and prisons, and it especially includes the Department of Education. You know, we've only got, we're the only state with a single unified school system, and that is taken care of through the state, not from counties, municipalities, and so forth. So these are things that they feel the House leadership needs to be readjusted because, by the way, we're in a pandemic. And if you hadn't noticed, our housing prices, our home prices, they're actually going up. It's actually increasing. Who's buying those houses? Well, a good many of them are going to out-of-state folks. So why not tax those folks more? They don't live here. Uh, They are benefiting by owning property in Hawaii. 
Yeah, and uh, I, I know that the uh, article that Kevin wrote, you know, says that there's opposition from the, um, mm. the county mayors, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, Derek, Derek Kawakami mm-hmm. from Kauai, Mike Victorino from Maui, for sure on record opposing this. Yeah, and, uh, the, you know, judging by the comments that I was scrolling through, a lot of the folks that are against this are saying, hey, I own a second home. This is going to mm. be, like, way too expensive for me. Right, but you know, keep in mind that twenty five percent of home sales uh, out of are from out of state folks. That's over the last ten years. Now on Oahu, it's only about fifteen percent. That caught me by surprise. I thought it would actually be more, but on Hawaii County and Kauai County, it's forty percent. So yes, there's a good argument being made by people that have second homes that are renting them out. But there's another argument being made that it's it's folks that don't live here that are buying the homes. Therefore, they should pay more, and they're not cheap homes, as we all know. And there will have to be a a proposal to uh, change the Constitution, right, in order to do some Right, of and that's that's going to be big. The Tax Foundation is among the groups saying, boy, that Con-Am question is vague. Which properties are going to be taxed? What's the surcharge going to be? So a lot, of, a lot of questions still remain, but the bill, at least as of this week, is still alive. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Kevin Dayton's full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Coming Saturday, February 20th, it's an evening of piano jazz in our next virtual Atherton Studio performance. Maggie Heron plays songs from her latest album, Your Refrain, featuring originals co-written with her late daughter plus classics from the Great American Songbook. It's an online show, so join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. American presidents are commonly seen dressed for business, wearing a suit and tie, maybe even a hat. But you know, even in Hawaii, President Obama was rarely seen in Hawaii's business informal wear, the Aloha shirt. Not so for one president who happened to have an affinity for the tropical print shirts. Harry S. Truman was president from 1945 to 1953. During his administration, he began working and wearing Aloha shirts and similar sports shirts while on vacations in Florida. Uh, Kristen Stalling is the museum curator of the Hawaii S. Truman National Historic Site in Independence, Missouri. Uh, It includes the home that he shared with his wife, Bess. And that uh, museum includes over 60 sports shirts. Uh, A few of them were Aloha shirts from Hawaii manufacturers. She spoke with the Conversations' Jason Ubai about the collection. President Truman was always a pretty spiffy dresser. In his early days, he owned a haberdashery, which is a men's clothing store in Kansas City, for about a year or so. And so was always very particular about the way he looked. He knew several tailors that made custom suits for him through the years. And so that continued up and through his vice presidential period. Granted, he was only vice president for less than three months when Franklin Roosevelt passed away. So when he became president, he was kind of thrust into the limelight. And there were some comments about his clothing generally, but for the most part, you know, he was a nice dresser, wore dark suits. He did like to wear a bow tie now and then, but that was the only place that he could really show kind of his personality because like i said most of his suits were dark blue black brown you know he might have a pinstripe but nothing really crazy so he did like to throw on a splashy tie but it wasn't until he got to key west and a couple of years into his working vacations down there that he adopted these colorful sport shirts when he first started going in 1946 was the first time that he took a working vacation to key west he began to adopt the local clothing but he really was still pretty conservative with it. So you'll see pictures of him wearing a tucked-in long-sleeve shirt but with the sleeves rolled up and no coat. And then after that, you'll see 
a sport shirt with short sleeves, but it's still tucked in. And so there was kind of a progression. And then eventually you see him with, you know, shirt tails out, short sleeves, but still in the photographs you can tell that they are solid, light-colored shirts. If there's a pattern, it's very conservative. That went on through 1947. And then in 1948 was when kind of the turning point happened. There was a Miami-based sportswear manufacturer, and the president, his name was Ben Bloom. He was with Royal Palm Sportswear. He sent Truman four shirts that what he called the Florida style, and all four of them had bright, crazy patterns on them. And he wasn't even sure if Truman would wear them or not. But he thought, you know, I see him receive other gifts of different various things, and I would like to see if, you know, he would enjoy these. So he sent them, and sure enough, the next couple of days, Truman began wearing them and was photographed in them, and those pictures went out really across the nation. So everybody got to see Truman wearing these sports shirts. And so it was probably pretty shocking initially for people to see that. But that really encouraged other companies after that to send him additional shirts. And the other thing that's coinciding with this is just the rise in popularity of these sports shirts. I mean, men's sportswear had come about in the 30s, but, you know, it was kind of a gradual progression. And really, like the Aloha shirt, for instance, that term was coined, like, in the late 30s. And that had a lot to do with travel that was becoming more accessible to Hawaii. So you have those sort of influences that are spreading. So by the 40s, you have a lot more people having access to those shirts. You also have military stationed in the area, and so that helped with that dissemination of new ideas for the shirts. So by the 40s, especially the late 40s when the war was over and people weren't restricted by rationing and fabric restrictions and those sorts of things, a lot of clothing kind of exploded, you know, like much more flamboyant became popular after the war. So you'll see people like Truman, I know, Bing Crosby also was known for wearing tropical shirts. So it was kind of a, a popular thing that was growing at that time anyway. For him, I think he just he happened to be president at the right time. And I think he kind of helped popularize it along with the celebrities that wore them. But on the flip side of that, he did have his critics <laughs> for adopting that clothing style. There were some opinion writers at the time that felt like seeing you know the president of the United States on a beach in a wild sports shirt and his swim trunks was not in keeping with with what he should be doing as the president of the united states but i think by the early 50s after he had been taking these vacations for several years and the pictures were out in the public that the general public was okay with it so i'm assuming he never wore it at the white house just over in florida correct that is my understanding and when the trumans came home back to independence after his presidency was done in 1953, they brought all of their belongings with them, and one of those things was a trunk, and it was full of these sport shirts. So that's how we now have 64 sport shirts in our collection. They appear to have been folded up and put in this trunk and put up in the attic and never touched again. Oh. So, you know, he wasn't wearing the shirts in Washington, and he didn't come home after his presidency in retirement and wear them around Independence, Missouri. And to your knowledge, the sports shirts, they were all donated, gifted to President Truman? That's my feeling. It's hard to pinpoint. When I was doing my research, I was trying to determine, you know, when he went to Key West, did he or his people go out and specifically buy shirts for him to wear while he was down there? Or did most of these come as gifts from, you know, fans and sportswear manufacturers and and people like that? And I feel like for the most part, he just received so many of these shirts that he didn't probably ever need to go out and buy his own. Yeah. Um, most of the time, like a lot of the letters that we have will say something like, we like to send you five of the latest style. You know, So they were sending him multiples each time he went down there. And he went about twice a year. He went 11 times between 1946 and 52 down to Key West. So that's quite a few shirts and probably – too many for him to to wear while he's down there, perhaps, or maybe he didn't like all of them that he received, but he did share with his staff, his staff that went down there with him during these working vacations, he would pass these out and they would be able to wear them. They had loud shirt contests 
they always took kind of a class picture while they were down there. Everybody, you know, seated together all in their tropical sport shirts, which was kind of fun to see. And even they would pass them out to the press that would travel down there with them. And so when they would have press conferences, some of the images of those you'll see, the photographers wearing the shirts and the staff and Truman, everybody's, you know, adopting the, the local dress. And it ended up being called the Key West uh, uniform. Did he ever give a reason to why he relented that, or, you know, kind of just adopted the style because he seemed resistant at first? Did he ever write anything or say anything about it? I've never come across anything like that. I think it was more of a natural progression. I don't necessarily know that he was resistant to it. I just think the opportunity hadn't presented itself to him yet. So if, if someone had sent him these shirts in 1946, perhaps he would have adopted them sooner. But, you know, it could be that early on in his presidency, he was trying to be a little bit more careful about the way he was presenting himself until he kind of got his feet wet and then felt a little more comfortable showing his true colors, so to speak. Like I said, he did have quite the personality and did enjoy the fun of a crazy necktie and, you know, that sort of thing. So I don't think it was beyond the realm of possibility that he would just jump right into something like this. The only other thing that I thought was interesting, the Trumans did take a Hawaiian trip after the presidency. So when they got back home, no doubt they needed a vacation. And so they took a trip in March and April of 1953 to Hawaii. And they had some friends that Truman had worked with over the years in political circles that uh, lived out there. So they went out and spent some time out there. And so some of those pictures, you can also see him wearing the sport shirt. So he did take them with him to that trip. And so you'll see him with the sport shirts and sandals and that sort of thing in some of those images of that trip. That was Kristen Stalling, museum curator at the Hawaii S. Truman Historic Site in Independence, Missouri. She spoke with the Conversations Jason Ubai about the President's Sport and Aloha Shirt Collection. And that winds it up for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tonigawa will host an Aloha Friday show. Got some feedback for us? Got some questions about vaccines or anything else you may have heard on our air? Or maybe your call didn't make it uh, on the show today. We did get a number uh, of people who were uh, trying to get in to talk to the senator. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.